I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. I realize that on the sermon notes, which I am confident you're also pulling out of your bulletin, I realize it says there, Hebrews 6, bad on my part. That's because I was having such a good time in Hebrews 6, I forgot to change it. But when it says read today's, uh, today's text, it should say Hebrews 7. So that's where we're heading today, verses 22 to 28. And as you find your way there, and the sermon notes, of course, you'll want, uh, I want to introduce you, at least by reference, to a couple that you may not know as famous, because you've never heard their name before, but Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher. Exactly, completely non-recognized. Herbert and Zelmyra Fisher hold a world record, according to Guinness, At the longest recorded marriage, you were thinking kiss. No, no. With names like Herbert and Zelmyra, no, I don't think so. Longest recorded marriage, uh, they were uh, born a while ago, and they recorded 86 years, 9 months, and 16 days until Herbert died at the age of 106 about 10 years ago. Well, you say, well, I guess, okay. Um, I mentioned that because of this. Uh, Without knowing them and knowing if it was a happy 86 years, I would just say this. You don't know these things. I mean, you could have been looking at each other thinking, you first. No, I don't know. That's sad more than funny. Well, in a day of broken promises... It's wonderful to be able to celebrate somewhere promises kept. Nowhere will you find that more clearly displayed for all of us in the book of Hebrews than in today's text, where there are promises made by God to us. If you're a child of God, these are written to you. By child of God, I mean you have trusted Christ as your Savior from sin, truly born again by the Spirit of God, which I'll talk about throughout the morning but I'm I'm wanting us to think together about the sentence I've given you as a title for this morning. Specifically, Christ is our security, not our good behavior. I want you to think about that with me, okay? Main point, that's it. Christ is our security, not our good behavior. And this, this should bring great comfort to you, whatever life brings your way. When you struggle with sin, or doubt, or failure, or discouragement, depression, all manner of stuff that comes to us. Please know this. Christ is your security. Christ keeps you, not your good behavior. Some people end up thinking, somehow, that on days when, let's face it, you're kind of rotten, that somehow... God loves you a little less, or you're a little more in danger of hell, or maybe he's just had it with you. This text is a reminder that Christ is your security, not your good behavior. Okay, so prepare yourself to be encouraged. Uh, This is a text written with great joy to the people of God, and I hope that today we receive it as such. Okay, I want to pray for us, 
and invite God's special presence in the preaching of his word, and then we will get after it here together today. Father, it is with great joy that we open the word of God together in a day of of information and talk, how we need good news and truth and promises that will be kept. So, Father, open your word to us and our hearts to you and point us to, to, to Christ and fill us with joy. So thank you. Um, join us now. Help us, O oh Father, in the preaching of your word that Christ would be honored. And we pray together in his name. Amen. Uh, on your sermon notes, there are several elements of review. As always, you remember that this is our third sermon from Hebrews 7. And so this whole chapter has been a look at the priesthood. That is, those, those individuals in the Old Testament, the Levitical priests, and now coming to Christ, those people identified in the Bible as priests, those people who are go-betweens between us and God. And this chapter is pointing to Christ as a greater high priest, a better high priest, and it's been telling us why that is true. And, of course, as you are reminded here uh, on the little parts of review, Christ is a different kind of high priest, a greater and better one. You'll remember that we were introduced in this chapter to, that I call him that shadowy figure in the Old Testament, uh, Melchizedek in Genesis 14. And for many of us, that might have been the first real look at this guy, whoever he was. Well, you remember three verses in Genesis 14, a couple thousand years before the time of Christ, very little really said about him. But you remember, if you were with us, he is identified as a, as a king and a priest, both of those. As a king, he was king of Salem, which you know is that the prototypical city of, what turned into the city of Jerusalem later on, Salem, from that, the same core word as the Hebrew word shalom, so king of peace, by the designation of where he was king, and also, as the text would tell us, king of righteousness by his name. Well, Melchi, king, or Melech, and Zedek, Zedak, uh, all a Hebrew root, that means righteousness. So by his, by his role as king, he was king of peace, and by his name, king of righteousness. And all this is fleshed out in the book of Hebrews, but at the time, he was acknowledged as this king priest interacting with Abraham, who was the, the great grandfather of, of Levi, from whom all the Levitical priests would come. Remember all this. This is important stuff. If you were here, you should be saying, yeah, I knew that, right? So Melchizedek, um, a different kind of priest. He wasn't uh, part of the Levitical priesthood. He was, he was a different kind. And Abraham acknowledged that by paying tithes to him. Now, it would appear that nothing is made of that. For a thousand years till you get to the psalm, Psalm 110, a, a kingship psalm, a royal psalm, where God, speaking through David as a prophet at the time, speaking of Messiah who was to come, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And he brings up some guy who lived a thousand years before. God does through David. Isn't that interesting? So it goes from Melchizedek, Abraham-ish, for, you know, 2,000 years before Christ, to the Psalms a 1,000 years later, and then another 1,000 years to our text. How interesting that God would say, no, something happened back there, and you should know it. You should pay attention, because this is how you, a 
approach God is through this better and different kind of priest. All right? So that's kind of where we have been. And now we come to this final section. And I I realize last week we included verse 22 as part of last week's text. And I grabbed it again and pulled it into this week's text because I I just wanted it. So I did. Um, (laughs) So I realize you might say, well, there's a paragraph. I know. I got it. You'll see why. So in wanting to pick up our reading, then I'm going to start at verse 22, but I do that knowing there's an awkward start because it's based on what's before it. So the first word of verse 22 is this, and it's looking at verse 21, which is the quote from Psalm 110. You're a high priest forever, according to the ordered Melchizedek back in verse 17. The Lord has sworn, will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. Here we go, verse 22 then. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. There, verse 22. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But, but he, that is Christ, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. That's an important word, consequently. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, that is the Levitical type of high priest, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, as I read this, a couple of things should happen. All right? You should, first of all, remember that when we begin chapter 7, I said to you, verse 25 is like the the verse toward which the whole chapter is headed. Right? You did remember this, didn't you? Say yes. This will make me feel better. Uh, So, yes, good. So verse 25, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So we've said from the beginning, verse 25, like all the waters of chapter 7 are are heading to this. And again, you could say chapter 8, verse 1. We have such a high priest. So that whole element. Then then I wanted to say this too. As I read just now, that, that section... I hope that if you've been with us the whole time, that your mind kept jumping to other texts in Hebrews because there are threads throughout this text that point you back to chapter 1, specifically, for example, verse 28. You're a a son who's been made perfect forever. Man, you right away mentally went, that's what chapter 1 was about, didn't you? Yes, thank you. Thank you, John. Yes, that's what I want to hear. You get an A. Move to the front of the class. Excellent. Well done. So there are threads all through this section that draw you back to the, all the elements that the writer's been giving us chapter by chapter so far. So it's, it's almost like if you had an orchestra, the music at this, in this section is coming to a crescendo. Okay? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And all God's people are going to say, yes. Amen. Oh, this is good. So we want to look at this then. I'm calling it three implications of having Christ as our great high priest. Okay, that's, that's where we're going here 
this morning. I start, of course, as I mentioned, with verse 22, because I wanted to do that. So verse 22, this, this makes Christ the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, I mentioned here already, we hear echoes of Psalm 110, and of course, if you go back to chapter 1, you have echoes of Psalm 2 and Psalm 45, both of which we visited when we preached Hebrews chapter 1. Royal Psalms, where God speaks of Messiah who was to come and speaks of his eternality, that is, his foreverness, and his recognition as part of the order of Melchizedek, a different, a different kind of priest. But I want to say this, a couple of words. First, if you look back at verse 21, I want to push again. I've been, I've been going there already. I just want to call it out forever. A high priest forever. Whereas, as we'll see in a moment, the human high priests of old couldn't continue to serve in that role. How come? They kept dying which is something that attends the human race ever since Adam and Eve, you may have noticed. So those other high priests kept dying. They couldn't continue in that role. And again, I'm I'm borrowing from where we're going. I realize that's okay. The other human high priests, as in verse 27, they were sinners too. They were sinners too. So when they got up in the morning to offer sacrifices, the first thing they had to do was offer some kind of a sacrifice for them, themselves, because they were sinners too. So, so the Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, speaking of Messiah who was to come, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever. Oh my goodness, a different kind of priest, a better priest, one who will continue in that role, what is it, forever. Now, verse 22 then, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. And I want to press on that for just a moment here as you see the little bullet points I've given you. We love guarantees. We like guarantees that come from from businesses. When we buy a product, you know how it is? Even if you don't buy the extended warranty, which hope I don't offend anybody, they're rarely a good deal. That's free advice, but it's not online. So that's okay. Um, But we like guarantees, warranties, because if something goes wrong, somebody will fix it. Well, let me tell you something. Jesus is the kind of high priest with whom nothing will ever go wrong. Okay? So he's a guarantee of a, of a better, something better. It's a promise. Now, there's an illustration in the Old Testament that I want, to, I want to just remember with you that helps us think of a time when somebody else that matters was a guarantee for another. This is in the book of Genesis. You know that as you read the book of Genesis, uh, first book in the Bible, the, the story of Joseph covers chapters 37 to 50. And there's a moment in there I just want to grab, okay? You remember, if you've read the story, that Joseph, who was one of the younger brothers, was betrayed by his older brothers. Yeah, he was kind of a rascal, but that's not the point, okay? His older brothers decided to get rid of him. Uh, they were going to kill him, but then they decided not to, and somebody came up with the bright idea to just sell him, get a little money out of the deal. So they did. They faked his death and sold him to some traders who took him down to Egypt, where he had a pretty rough time for a while, like 13 years, if you count his life. They sold him when he was 17. He spent his whole, all of his 20s down there in a, in a bad situation in Egypt. When he was about 30, through the providence of God, he was elevated uh, to the like the second highest place in the government. 
It was the work of God. Well, uh, then there's a famine in the land. I'm skipping all kinds of details. And during that time, his older brothers, now, a couple decades later, they're hungry. So their dad, Israel, the 12 sons of Israel, now there's 10 of them, they're going to come down look to Egypt looking for food. And they don't know their brother is still alive. And they certainly don't know that they're standing in front of him, and they are. So there's a moment where Joseph is there, his 10 older brothers come in and bow before him. And they're shaking in their boots, and he's got all the power and the food. He's got lunch, see? Well, they sold him. He could have cracked the whip and tossed them in the, in the, you know, the slammer for a while, but he didn't. He wanted to see what was in their hearts. So as part of that process, he's asking them details through a translator and all, even though he can understand their mother tongue. And he, he, they, they, somebody in the group talks about their younger brother. That's Benjamin, which was Joseph's only full brother. A lot of drama in this story. And Joseph is saying, I would love to see Benjamin. Well, he's home with dad, who has grieved what he thought was Joseph's death. So dad kept Benjamin home, the youngest. Well, as part of this whole thing, uh, they're getting ready to go, and Joseph has this conversation and you know, says something about his younger brother, and they're going to come back for more food, and I'm skipping all kinds of details. But there's a moment when, when, when Joseph says to them, if you come back for more food, bring your younger brother and if you don't, you won't see my face. Okay? So they all go back, they go back home, eat up their, all their food, and they're hungry again. So they're getting ready to go back down here. And they say to dad, uh, Israel, or, uh, we got to take Ben, got to take Benjamin. He goes, not on your life. I've lost his older brother, Joseph. I'm not going to lose him. You're not going. Well, time goes on. They get hungrier and hungrier. And at some point... And here's the the moment. Judah, who was part of the let's sell him crowd before, Judah says to dad, we're hungry. We got to do this. Listen, I will be a pledge for the safety of Benjamin. I will be the pledge. I will be surety for him. If anything happens to him, take it out on me. Now, that's not the end of the story. They go back down to Egypt. Joseph, still probing to see what's in their hearts, he sets up Benjamin. He sets him up for a fall. It's a cool story. Well, there's a moment when, when Joseph pulls the trigger, says, oh, this guy, Benjamin, he's going to jail. We'll just keep him. The rest of you guys can go home. And Judah is the one who goes to Joseph and says, please, sir, I am surety for him. I pledge my father. His, his gray hair will go down to the grave. Listen, set him free. I will take his place. I will be his substitute and let him go free. Do you see this? Judah, the great ancestor of Messiah Jesus, who also takes the place of other guilty ones. Well, in Benjamin's case, presumed guilt. In our case, real guilt. Jesus, Revelation 5, is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's he's from the tribe of Judah. Here's his greater ancestor, a substitute for another. Well, a guarantee is what I'm pressing on. So thousands of years later, Messiah Jesus comes as a substitute for your sin and for mine. One who dies on the cross in our place to pay for our sin, which we could never have done because we are not perfect. 
So we, we, we then trust Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Judah, the one who substituted for another. Jesus substituted for us. He is the guarantee of a better covenant. That's verse 22. Now, verses 23 to 25, second heading. Jesus Christ saves completely those who come to God through him. Think about all these things, please. Jesus Jesus Christ saves completely those who come to God through him. I read these again. The former priests, as we've said, were many a number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But, but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues, what was our key word? Forever. How long? Forever. And then verse 25, again, if I had a drum, I'd beat it loudly. You don't want that, but I would. If there was an orchestra, this is the moment. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives. He lives how long? Forever to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost. Big discussion about the words that are involved here. Does it mean mostly time? Does it mean mostly extent? What is it? I think it's both. And your translators, I've given you here what you could do with different versions. Sometimes it's helpful, even if you don't know original languages, that's fine. Look at the different ways in which translations speak of something. Many times that will give you a a broader look at what the words that are used in the original languages are all about. So that's what I did here. You can do this. Jesus is able to save forever. He's able to save absolutely He's able to save completely, to save once and forever, to save to the uttermost. And may I say, it includes both time and extent. Time meaning he is able to save forever. By extent, I mean completely. So, as the next little bullet point, do you see this? This means you are not saved partially or on probation or until you really mess up again, as you do, and so do I. We are not on probation with God. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute, because sometimes experientially, we doubt this. Theologically, we may agree. But in those, in those moments, on those days, when we just uh, mess it up, how often we doubt this truth. We say to ourselves, I've done it this time. Oh. How could he love me? I mean, seriously, what a, what, a, what a mess up. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve. How many times have I heard a person who professes faith, who probably is truly born again, who says something like, you know, I hope I make it. Right? Almost as though on a practical level, we believe what most Americans do. That is, that on the end of days, when we stand before God, that God takes all our stuff, the good and the bad. This is what a lot of people believe. You may believe this. If you do, you're wrong, fortunately. People believe this, though, that at the end of the day, you stand before God and, and God weighs it, like one of those old scales, 
all the good you did, and then there's all the bad. And we hope that at the end of it, it weighs like this, more good than bad. And we tend to think on that day, God says, eh, it's close, but you're in. And we go, whew, man, I wasn't sure the whole time. I don't know. Here's the thing. Here's the bad news and the good news. There's no way you can come out ahead. You know why? Because the standard for heaven isn't be good. Here it is. The standard for heaven is be perfect. See any problems with that? It's already over. (laughs) It's already over. Because once you blow it, you know how math works. Right? All it takes is one, and suddenly you can't be at 100% ever again. I remember having to face that. I remember a math teacher in junior high messing with our little brains. It was awful. He, seriously. I remember it to this day. I'm scarred. It was mathematics. He said, he said all right, everybody stand here in the middle. Move half the distance to that wall. And so, but, oh, well, this is hard. <sighs> Go over there. He said, okay, move half again. Now move half again. Move half again. Now, if that wall went forever and you kept going by half, when would you hit the wall? What's the answer? Never. I know that's going to mess with you the rest of the day. See? Because once once there's a little smidgen of room, that is one sin. You are no longer perfect and never will be. So even if you argue that you're better than most, I mean, pretty good most days. Okay, some days. Periodically. Only one would disqualify. Heaven isn't for good people. It's for perfect people. So the only hope you have, the only hope you have, is knowing a perfect person who will cover you. And that's the gospel. That's Jesus. The only one who's ever perfect, who when you trust him, wraps his his robe of perfect around you and says, that person is with me. See, heaven is for perfect people, not good people. There aren't any of those. For perfect people who, lacking righteousness of our own, are covered by another. And oh, that's good news. So the text, as it talks about, saved to the uttermost. See, forever and completely We are saved. We belong to him when we truly trust Christ as our Savior. Wow, truly born again by the Spirit of God. And I realize sometimes in our our lives, we're in a process of faith. I realize sometimes it's fuzzy. Sometimes we raise a hand, pray a prayer, write something. Uh, You know, I, I don't know where that is with you. I do know you can go through all of those steps and never be truly born again because you never trusted Christ as your Savior from sin. You did a thing. And so, so I'm pressing on trusting Christ and him alone as your savior from sin, your security, your surety. It's Christ and him alone, 100%. Yes, in fact, all my eggs are in that basket, all of them. It's not 95% Jesus and 5% Jay. It's 100% him. The 5% me would never make it, nor would yours. Christ is able to save completely, 
those who draw near to God through him. Now, watch the next bullet point here. The Bible teaches that God keeps us. He keeps us. That is, not only is it not your good works that get you into the family of God, it is not your good works that keep you there. You see? It's not good work, your good works that keep you there because you don't have enough, and we kind of mess up. I'm being gentle. Regularly and routinely, and love it so, Lord, help us. Our good works can't keep us in his family either. They can't get you in to his family. They can't keep you there. It's Christ. So I say to you, just a couple of other texts about this. First Peter 1, in this wonderful doxological beginning to this letter, Peter is saying, blessed be God. And, and then he gets down to verse 5, where he describes us as, in various translations, kept or guarded or protected or shielded. We're kept by the power of God, guarded by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be completely revealed in the last time. In this, he says, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you are, you are distressed by various trials. Trying of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to praise and glory honor the revelation of Jesus Christ, and on and on, kept, kept by his power, guarded, protected, shielded. Similarly, Jesus in John 10, as I give you here, I could give you John 10, 28, 29, 30. He says it more than once, but here's just one. Jesus said, I give them eternal life. This is that great shepherd text. I, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you hear this? Do you hear this? Now, I realize at this moment that there is, there is a fear that kind of rattles around in the people of God. Somebody in the room will say, yes, but if you have that kind of confidence that you belong to him no matter what, surely you'll sin more. This is going to be motivation to sin. Now, that concern has been around a while, which is why the Apostle Paul wrote things like Romans 6. It says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And he says, no, God forbid. No, not a chance. No way. No, that's not the point. And besides, if I may say, um, grace isn't an excuse to sin. You and I don't need new excuses to sin, do we? We do it anyway. No, grace properly understood is not an excuse to sin. Grace is that that says, when you do, come to me. Come to me. Come to me again. Come to me again. Oh, I know. It's the 38th time on the same conversation. Today. (laughs) But come. Come. Come to me. Come to me confidently. Come to me eagerly. Come. Please look at that last bullet point there under that heading. We come to God through Jesus Christ. It is through the cross of Jesus Christ alone that God's wrath is satisfied. And I'm saying here, God's just wrath, his righteous wrath against our sin is satisfied. I don't mean here like God is just mad at you. No, God is just, 100% just. That longing in your heart for justice is there because you're made in the image of God. And you think you like justice? He loves it even more. He's the standard and author of it. 
So don't, sometimes people think, well, I love justice, and then there's God. Oh, no, no. You have, you have no greater love for justice than God does. None. And any little bit you have is because of him, because you're made in the image of God. Hear that a lot. That I'm all about justice. I get it. Yes. Well, true justice is his, and he set the standard, and anything you think you have came, came from him. Well, God's just wrath against sin was fully satisfied at the cross of Jesus. Human works could never atone for sin. Please keep, just get this. World religions focus on what we do. This is the Grand Canyon divide between Christianity and religions in the world. Religions in the world, across the board, I would say, focus on people doing what they can to appease God or God's to appease gods who probably don't like you anyway, and to, to hold back their, their capricious anger in many cases. World religions typically are about do this, do this, do this, do this, and hope for the best on the final day. Christianity, in contrast, focuses on what Christ has done when he died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead. So it's not about what you do to earn it, It's about what Christ did already to secure payment for your sin all by his own death on the cross. Yours is to believe it. See, that world, that divide between world religions, uh, no no one, Jesus said, no one can come to the Father but through me. Only in Christ is, is sin atoned for. Now, I want to go to that third section then, third heading. Jesus Christ is exactly the, the high priest we need, verses 26 through 28. Uh, Jesus is the guarantee of our salvation. He saves completely those who come to God through him. And Jesus Christ is exactly the high priest we need. Verses 26 to 28 again. Some of these themes will be very familiar. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. That is, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this, what's the phrase? Once for all. Man, grab that. He did it once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness. They're they're human sinners, just like all of us. That's their weakness. And they die. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath that came later, that is, the Lord has sworn, we're back to verse 21, the word of the oath which came later, thousand years uh, later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. Now, I want to I talk about just a couple things here. You notice, first bullet point, since such a high priest meets our need, that's the NIV on that. I think it's probably what you have if you have the NIV. Such a high priest meets our our, our need. What is, what is our need? Well, yes, a, a savior, one who paid for our sin, but there's more. Listen, there's more. In our days of weakness and difficulty and doubt and struggles and fear and, and, and depression and discouragement and sadness and anger and bitterness and struggles with relationships, we have a lot of needs, don't we? This is humanity. It's us. It's us. It's real life. I, I've said to more than one person as we talk about church, our church is, is, is 100% full of people who need Jesus. <laughs> we have zero, none here who don't. You'd be welcome among us. 
Every single one who walks in the door desperately needs a Savior. So if you think you're showing up in a church where there's a bunch of people who have it all together, we have none of those. That's why I tell on you like that. (laughs) Tell everybody we're messes. Well, you know what I mean. Desperately in need of a Savior. Jesus is just the high priest we need. As I said before, when we sin, we run to him. When we doubt, we run to him. When we question, when we struggle, when we say, God, here it is again, and I cannot fix myself. How many times do you end up saying, I want to fix me? You ever do this? I'm going to do better. Are you? Okay. Well, good. Go ahead. No, I desperately need him. I need him to, I need him to help. I need him to, I need him to correct me. I need him to fix I think I said it last, or I need him to fix that part of me that wants, the want to part of me. This is a difference about, this is how God changes us in Christ. Because see, often what we do, um, you understand what I mean here, when we fight against sin, sometimes we want to wall off sin to make it harder to get to. And we get very good at climbing walls. And what we need, what we need from Jesus is him to change our will, the want to, to where I really don't want that anymore. You understand what I mean by that? There, there, and you know this already because there are things in your life that, that if I offered them as temptations, they wouldn't, they wouldn't get your attention. You'd say, I don't want to do that. Now, other things are a struggle, but that over there, you don't have to put a wall up. I don't want to do that. Uh-uh. <laughs> so, so my prayer about me is that in those areas where I, I do want to, I'll say, oh, God, change my want to. Don't just build a bigger fence. That's typically, again, we, we do that. Build a big wall. I understand walls. I get it. But I'm so good at tunneling under them, climbing over, going around. So I, I end up praying, as I think you should do too. God, change my will. Change my want to, to where I don't want to do that anymore. Then the fence isn't needed. I don't want to go over there. Hmm. He is just the high priest we need. Keep going. Human high priest had credentials. Jesus has better credentials. There's the list. Holy. Uh, one of the key words in the book of Leviticus. Second hour, of course, uh, we're hearing about this in the study of, of Leviticus down the hall with Pastor Matt. Holy, holy, innocent, unstained by sin, separated from sinners. Now you say, wait, hold on. Separated from sinners, but I, but I want to be, I don't, I don't want to be separated from me. I, I no, the idea behind this is different from, or in a class by himself, as another writer put it. He's in a class by himself, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, this list of credentials is significant, and I just want to briefly reference an Old Testament story that helps us think about the credentials of a high priest. And that's what this list is. It's like a resume. Here's here's the deal. In, in the Old Testament book called Ezra, if you ever did... Uh, way back in the day, walk through the Bible, you'd know Ezra Priest, Nehemiah Walls, and on you'd go. If that doesn't resonate, just forget I said it, okay? But Ezra, there's some things about the priesthood in the book of Ezra, and I'll leave all the history aside for a moment, but at the moment, in the, in the story, telling of the story, there are some people who were going to serve as priests, but it's like in the mess, they lost their resume. That's the best analogy, okay? They couldn't prove their credentials, and this is a real problem, because if somebody's going to intercede between you and God and it's the wrong person, you got the wrong person offering a sacrifice, do you see a problem here? You are in big trouble, mister. 
right? So you better have the right credentialed person to intercede between you and God. There were some people who didn't have their resumes. So they were, you ready? Excluded from the priesthood at that time because the danger of having somebody represent you before a holy God and have it be the wrong person was significant. So they were excluded from the priesthood until such time as it could be verified. That's in Ezra chapter 2. You can read the story. Now, later in the book, chapter 9, Ezra 9, you find this uh, a group of priests identified who were not separated from sin. Their hands were in the cookie jar. They were across, they were across the line. And there was a big problem there, too. They weren't. So in a sense, by looking at those situations in Ezra, you see a picture of Jesus in Hebrews, who's got the right credentials. He's a different, a greater, a better high priest. What are his credentials? Perfect, innocent, undefiled, holy, separated from sinners. That is, in a class by himself. We have, chapter 8, verse 1, we have such a high priest, one who can save to the uttermost. So Ezra, looking at human priests, is a contrast between those humans who failed and Jesus as our great high priest. And then my final comment here as we head toward a conclusion, verse 27 It says this, he did this once for all. Once for all. Why is that that true? Please get this. This is is so important for you to know. Um, The Old Testament sacrifices for sin, the blood of animals, we're going to see this in chapters 9 and 10, couldn't pay for sin. I hope you know this. In the Old Testament, all the rivers of animal blood that was shed, it didn't pay for sin. It covered it temporarily until the perfect sacrifice would come. The one, Jesus, who once and for all paid for all sin at all time. Anyone who is ever made right with God, it's, it's ultimately through the work of Jesus on the cross. The blood of bulls and goats could never pay for sin. Romans 3 tells us this too. Cover sin, yes, temporarily until the coming of one who could pay for it once and for all. So we want to get our our biblical theology squared away, okay? He did this once and for all. Not a human high priest who struggled with sin and died. No, the perfect, the perfect high priest. Not an animal sacrifice, but but the sacrifice of Christ, the perfect one who stood in our place. A substitute, a guarantee, a pledge for our security. A perfect sacrifice, a perfect savior. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who come to God through him. This is you if you're a child of God. To save you forever. What is it? And completely, completely. All who come to God through him. And we say glory to God. Imagine a savior like this. Imagine when you mess up, maybe tomorrow morning about 8.05, you're getting ready to go to work and already you're, you're saying words in your mind that you shouldn't say, I don't know what it is for you. Oh, you belong to him. Don't say those words. You still belong to him. You still belong to him. You still belong to him. I hope you know Christ is your savior. I hope for each person here and those listening later, that you are truly born again by the Spirit of God, that you have trusted, that you are today trusting Christ in Him alone as your Savior from sin. And, and if you have never done that, if that has not been something that's a conversation you've had with God, for goodness sakes, what are you waiting for? 
now, right now, as we'll pray in a minute, you say, oh God, I believe that Jesus died for me. I'm trusting Christ, him alone, as my Savior from sin. I'm going to pray that God will do that in just a moment here. Closing, you look at your little notes there. Responding to God's word, I've already said everything under the first bullet point. The second one, it's a reminder that the New Testament is a missionary document. And this message, a writer talking about this exact text says, do you see why this message must go to the whole world? Because no one comes to the Father, Jesus said, except through him. No one can come and be uh, saved to the uttermost except through Jesus. Jesus is the only way. So read that little paragraph and think about that. I would like to pray for us to pray for you, to pray for myself. If you'd stand with me, let's ask God to take this home and give us great joy in him and genuine faith, genuine faith. Father, I thank you for your people today. I thank you for this text. Oh God, we revel today in this amazing text that you, Jesus, would be a savior forever and completely. We who do not deserve it. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for this. So great a salvation. Such a great redeemer and savior is Jesus. Father, I pray as well in this moment for any who might be hearing me speak now, now or later, who've never trusted Christ as their savior. Oh, Father, would you, would you prick their heart and draw them to yourself? that even now they would say yes, a response that's true from the heart, and say yes, I'm trusting Christ as my Savior from sin. Maybe it wasn't clear before, or I trusted 90% Jesus, 10% me, I got it wrong, I don't know what. But today, Christ and him alone. Father, would you do that work of redemption in any for whom that is a specific need today? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us as you do, being to us our God and Savior. We rejoice in Jesus as we pray in his name. Amen.